0: Verses 32 through 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Jopa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all aside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a a tanner.
1: Amen. You can have a seat. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to take out a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts. We are in what we're calling part 2, as we consider how the gospel extends beyond the borders of Israel, extends into Samaria, and to eventually the ends of the earth. We'll be journeying through the end of Acts chapter 12 and then taking a break for the last part of the summer and uh, at some point we haven't officially decided yet jump, jumping back in to finish out the book of Acts. So uh, as Eric, one of our elders last week, uh, let y'all know, uh, the, the elders have granted uh, me and Avery uh, sabbaticals and uh, two-week sabbaticals, and so uh, starting Tuesday and then for the next two weeks after that, my family will uh, not only not be here at the church, we won't be in Tupelo, we'll be uh, resting and rejuvenating. Um, um, Erica's aunt, Pam, she has a wonderful place for us in Fort Myers, Florida, so we will be spending our our weeks there, and it'll just be a wonderful time to, to rest and, and to be renewed and to just spend some time not focusing on ministry, and uh, I'm really thankful to you and to our elders for granting that. To me it really has been a long And uh, difficult two years The Lord has been gracious and he has sustained Us through it all and I am so thankful And and I rejoice in him for that But it it is time to rest And so I, I am thankful uh, for an Opportunity to do that over the next couple weeks I'm actually uh, working on a document that I'm Going to be sending you guys just to Express my gratitude uh, you know For you for, for the elders You know granting me this opportunity and then also just to kind of Let you know the types of things that I will Be doing on sabbatical and some ways that you can pray for me uh, while while I'm there, um, but yeah that'll be coming to you probably tomorrow so we are going to the beach and I asked Jude our oldest son recently, what he's looking forward to the most what are you looking forward to the most we're going to pam Pam's house that's what that's what the kids call her we're going to Pam Pam's house we're going to the beach she has a pool we're going to be in the hot Florida sun what what is the what do you want to do? You know, what are you looking forward to the most? And Jude responded, I want to chase the lizards. And I, you know, I've got to be honest with you, that is not my favorite beach activity, but it is his, all right? So we get to the beach, and what we want to do is put our feet in the water, and, and relax, and sit down, and Jude has, he doesn't want to play in the sand he doesn't want to play in the water he wants to go where all the trees are which is where all the bugs are because that's where all the lizards are and so he wants to chase the lizards and you know that's, that's just Jude's thing it's not mine. Um, it may not surprise you what I want to do at the beach is sit down um, so uh, at, at the beach I, lo- I love to sit down and one of the things that I really love to do is just to sit down and look out at the vastness of the ocean or the Gulf of Mexico or wherever we are um, I-, I love to see the vastness of, of the water it just it keeps going this way and that way and that way and it's just massive and, and I just think about our great God who has created something so big and it it blows my mind every single time how deep and how wide and how long the ocean is But but what's equally amazing to me, and and my kids and, and my wife really help me see this every single time, is while you have this vast ocean ahead of us just going and going and going, and my eyes just get fixed on that, there are millions of unseen tiny little things that are happening right under the water right at the shore right right on the edge of the beach. And so our boys will go and they'll find starfish and they'll find different shells and they'll find different animals and we'll see a school of fish swimming. And if you don't get close and you don't look carefully, you would miss it. You would miss all of this life that is happening right before your eyes, up close, because you're so focused on the big picture, the overwhelming vastness of the ocean. Sometimes in life we do miss these small yet significant things that happen right in front of us because our eyes are so fixed on the big picture. In the book of Acts so far, I hope you've noticed this, Luke has been fixated on the big picture. He's been focused on these big events, Pentecost. The first sermon, the establishment of the church. You've got the the conversion of Saul, just this massive monumental moment. And then as we get into chapter 10, the gospel officially and finally goes to the Gentiles. Even when we were in chapter 6, 7, and 8 where we saw the stoning of Stephen, this sacrificial radical obedience. We have these big pictures. It's, it's just, it, it fires you up in one sense and then in another sense you just feel really guilty because you're like, my experience as a Christian is nothing like the early Christians. Am I even a Christian? Should, should our lives be so much like Peter and the apostles and some of these, these characters that we read about? Um, this passage that we have today is situated between not only the two most important passages in the book of Acts our passage today is situated between the two most important passages in the New Testament. You could easily argue that the conversion of Saul and the conversion of Cornelius are the two most important, most consequential passages in the entire New Testament. Because with the conversion of Saul, we have, who, who we later named the Apostle Paul, we have the man who will end up writing the majority of the New Testament. His conversion is massive Christianity is not the same without the conversion of the Apostle Paul and then you get to chapter 10 and and we see Peter and Cornelius this Gentile who is converted what's very clear in this vision that Peter sees and Avery's gonna preach this passage next week we're not gonna get into it but but Peter receives this vision he goes and Cornelius is converted and it is very clear that the gospel is not just for the Jews And it's not just for people who are sort of related to the Jews. It is for full Gentiles, too. The gospel is for everyone, and it becomes abundantly clear in Acts chapter 10. And so from that point on, the gospel just continues to spread like wildfire all over the Gentile world. And so it's really easy to focus on those two big pictures and miss this little passage that is right before us. Commentators and scholars, they really don't have much to say about these two stories. It it probably took me a third of the time uh, in my study this week in reading commentaries. I just blasted through them because it was, you know, a page here, you know, two or three pages here, a few words. Actually, most of them spend time telling me all about the cities of Lydda and Joppa, and I'm like, I don't care, you know? I don't care what that is today, modern day equivalent. Interesting, I guess, but that has nothing to do with these people, but they're just, they, they don't have much to say. The big sweeping movement of God is just before and just after this passage, and Honestly, whenever I was lining up our sermon series, I tried every way in the world to find a way to include this passage with next week's passage, chapter 10, and just kind of give a little footnote. But Well, okay, Luke, he reintroduces us to Peter. You know, we've been focusing on Saul. Well, now Peter is here. Here's what Peter was doing. Peter was going through Lydda. He was going through Joppa. He healed a man, and then he raised a woman from the dead. Now let's get to the really important thing, his, his vision, his, his encounter with Cornelius, It's really tempting to overlook this passage. But I I believe that the Lord has two very important things for us to see here. And ironically enough, it's two things that we are very prone to overlook. I believe that we can draw two things, not only from the passage itself, but from Luke's intentional placement of this passage. And it's that first, in the kingdom of God... God works in, ex- in extraordinary ways. In the kingdom of God, God works in extraordinary ways. And two, this is what we overlook more than anything else. In the kingdom of God, ordinary people matter. So, first, in the kingdom of God, God works in extraordinary ways. Second, in the kingdom of God, ordinary people matter. Okay, let's look at these one by one. First, in the kingdom of God, God works in extraordinary ways. Now we see a couple things here from this passage. So so first what what we start to notice we have Peter here. Who, who, you know, Luke is reintroducing him onto the scene. And Peter was traveling around. He was likely visiting, if not formalized churches at this point, he was at minimum visiting the Christians in these various areas. He's going, a lot of people believe that Philip uh, evangelized this area of Lydda, and so there are Christians in this area. And so Peter is going to visit them to encourage them to continue preaching the gospel. And while he's there, the, the text tells us that he finds a man named Aeneas. And we learn that this man has been bedridden for eight years he was he was a paralytic um, and and then we see that Peter goes and he heals this man and then it tells us that the scene shifts in verse 36 and it says now there was in Joppa so Luke is just shifting the scene Peter's still in the city of Lydda but he says at the same time essentially in the city of Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha and so we learn about Tabitha some things about her that we'll get into later and uh, essentially she dies and her friends are like, hey, I've heard the apostle Peter is in a town that is sort of nearby. Can someone send for him? Maybe he can do something. And so they send for Peter. Peter comes to the city of Joppa. He goes into the room where the body of Tabitha was laid, and then she is raised from the dead. And in both cases, we learn, Luke gives us this comment that the people in the surrounding areas responded with faith in Jesus. And, and then he, he moves on. That's that's essentially what's happening here. Now, what we see first is that God is working in extraordinary ways. That, That jumps off the page here. We see initially that God is working in extraordinary ways by showing us that the ministry of Jesus continues through his disciples. Now, you remember, Luke, in his gospel... He tells us in the very first words of his gospel, the the gospel of Luke, he tells us that he is writing these things to to show us what Jesus began to do, the works that Jesus began to do. The book of Acts, we talked about this in our intro sermon to to the book, the book of Acts is essentially Luke telling us what Jesus continued to do, The continued works of Jesus. And we talked about how how can Jesus continue to work in the world if he ascended into heaven, which is what we see in Acts chapter 1. Jesus commissions his disciples and then he ascends into heaven. Jesus is no longer physically present on the earth, and yet his ministry continues. And we see that it continues through the church. In the book of Acts, the church has become an extension of Jesus himself. We remember the Apostle Paul, how he later describes the church as the body of Christ. Metaphorically, we as the church are his arms and his legs, his feet and his hands, reaching out to the world and continuing his ministry. In both the healing of Aeneas and the resurrection of Tabitha, Luke intentionally draws parallels to the ministry of Jesus. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, maybe you picked up on it. There's similar language. When Jesus would heal people, and here, as Peter heals, Aeneas, and then as Jesus raised people from the dead, as Peter does, the language is very similar. So first look at verses, verses 32 to 35. So, uh, okay, we can start in 33. There, Peter found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose all right so the language from this passage is very similar to the language Luke uses to describe the he, another healing during Jesus's ministry so if, if you would later turn don't turn now to, to Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 5 this is what we read the power of the Lord was with him him being Jesus to heal and behold some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And so then Jesus tells this man, he looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And this just enrages the Pharisees. They, they, are, they are all out of sorts. Jesus, he then asks if it is easier to forgive sins Or to look at this man and say, rise and walk. And I just can't imagine how the Pharisees must have felt in that moment. Is it easier for me to heal this man of his physical ailment or to forgive his sins? What Jesus is essentially saying there is, I'm God, deal with it. Um, But to demonstrate that he has the authority as God within him to forgive sins, Jesus healed this paralyzed man. And here's what Jesus said. He looked at him and he said, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then the text tells us that immediately the man got up. Peter similarly tells Aeneas here to rise and make your bed, and immediately he got up. What's important is Peter knows where healing power comes from. You see what he says here. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. And this is a really interesting comment. Jesus is not there. He's not, he's not present in the town. Peter didn't go consult with Jesus in the other room and you know, touch his garment, get some power, and then go touch this man. That's not, that's not how this works. But nevertheless, it is Jesus who healed this man. The healing power of Jesus continues to be present in the ministry of the disciples. Okay, so, so now notice how Luke describes the resurrection of Tabitha. Look, look at verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, He said, Tabitha, arise. And She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, there are multiple examples in the Gospels where we can draw parallels with Jesus' ministry. I want to stick with Luke. So, so Luke, in Luke chapter 7, he describes Jesus raising a widow's son. And this is what we read there. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and considerable crowd, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the, the bearer stood still, and she said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Obviously, there are appropriate differences. Peter is praying demonstrating his dependence on God's power to raise the dead but Peter commands the dead to rise in the same way that Jesus did okay here's the point the point is first of all not that since we are just as much disciples of Jesus as Peter was we need to be visiting hospitals and funeral homes and going over and just saying oh we'll take it from here doc one second and then pray and then say Jesus Christ heals you rise and make your bed. I mean, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go to funeral homes and uh, cause a tremendous amount of trauma um, by, by acting like we can raise someone from the dead. We're not, we're not called to this. Um, that's, that's not the point. Acts, once again, is descriptive, not prescriptive. However, what we do see is that the power of Jesus to change lives is just as present and just as active after his ascension as it was during his earthly ministry. We are not lacking because the the physical presence of Jesus is not here with us. His power continues through his spirit and through his church. God is still at work in the world in extraordinary ways. And, and God is so gracious, he sees fit to work in extraordinary ways through his church. The church is still God's chosen instrument to continue the ministry of Jesus. And so just a question for you to, to reflect on, if you're, if you're taking notes, write an answer to this. How have you experienced God's extraordinary works in your life? How have you experienced his extraordinary work? Something that you could never explain in any other way except to attribute it to God himself. God has done this. And maybe it's something you did not expect. Has he shown up and provided for you in ways that you never expected him to? Has he changed your heart toward a person that you never believed you would be able to forgive? God continues to work in extraordinary ways and this is one of the reasons why we should continue to pray big expectant prayers because we know that God continues to work in these extraordinary ways in our world and in our lives and we see that in that the ministry of Jesus continues through his disciples but we see we see one more thing here in the kingdom of God God works in extraordinary ways and this shows us that the kingdom of God is here now The kingdom of God, we talk about this often, but it's so important to to remember. The kingdom of God is not just a future reality. It's not just a future place that we will one day dwell. The the kingdom of God is a present reality too. It's something that is here and now. What we believe through the gospels, through the writings of the New Testament, is that when Jesus came to earth, he brought the kingdom of God with him. And in this kingdom, heaven meets earth. In the kingdom of God, Jesus' prayer is answered. Because it's in the kingdom of God that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom represents an existence, a way of life, where God is the king. And everything and everyone aligns with his perfect will and way and that's why we say that the kingdom of God is not fully realized here because that's obviously not always true but it is here the kingdom of God will one day be fully realized when Jesus returns but we actually enter into the kingdom of God through our conversion when when we become believers We become citizens of God's kingdom. And this is a wonderful motivation for obedience to God. See, I don't know if you've ever thought about this one. Why should you obey God? Well, he tells us to in his word. That's not good enough. That's not enough. How different is this motivation? Why should you obey God? Because I'm in his kingdom. And he's the king. He's in charge. He rules. He reigns. I'm a citizen of his kingdom now. And it's not just something I'm waiting to enter into later. It's something that, by my faith in Jesus, I've already entered into. That's why I obey him, because he's the king. He's the king of this kingdom that I am a member of. And that's why, well, these future realities um, of peace and healing and love and goodness and beauty and life they are, they are going to be realities. You, you think about Revelation 21. You think about how on that day there will be no more weeping. There will be no more sin. There will be no more tears. There will be no more death. You know why? Because it will be the kingdom of God that is fully realized. And in the kingdom of God, everything aligns to God's will. Everything. And everyone. It is a way of life that perfectly flows from the will of God. Now, of course, when we think about that, when we think about a life without sin, a life without sickness, a life without death, we can't even hardly imagine it because it is so radically different from our experience now even in the church we experience so much sin it's it's hard to imagine an existence where sin doesn't exist it it almost sounds as realistic as a fairy tale but Luke shows us shows us through this healing and through this resurrection he shows us that this new and glorious kingdom that we hope for one day that is open to both Jews and Gentiles is just as real as our hard lives in this world. Okay, so think about, think about the healing. By healing Aeneas in Jesus' name and think about the resurrection by raising Tabitha from the dead, Peter demonstrates that the kingdom of God is not a faraway reality. The kingdom of God is also a present reality. There were moments in the early church when a special, extraordinary work of God broke out among his people. There have been moments when the kingdom of God has become just a little bit more vibrant. For most of the history of the church and for most of our lives, the kingdom of God remains just a faint hue. It's there. You can see it but just barely there's there's so much sin there's so much ugliness in the world and all of that blurs the picture but in these special miraculous moments i wish i could have been there in these special moments we are able to see the kingdom of god in full color someone who is sick is healed by the power of jesus and the power of jesus alone someone who is dead is given new life is raised from the dead It's the kingdom of God in full view. A man paralyzed for eight years stands up and makes his bed. Why? Because Jesus said so. Healing is normal in God's kingdom. A godly woman suddenly dies, but then comes back to life and walks out of the place where she was being prepared for burial. Why? Because Jesus said so. Resurrection is normal in God's kingdom. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God is turning All that is wrong with the world upside down. Healing and resurrection, and in this scene that we have, they're a foretaste of what is to come. Do you see it? That one day there will be no physical ailments? That one day there will be no death? And do you see the reason? The reason is because those are not the conditions of God's kingdom. There is no sickness. There is no death in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God creates a new normal for God's people. Anytime, this is where it gets gets practical because I know you and I, we can't relate to, to healing people or raising people from the dead. But anytime we live in ways that are consistent with God's will and his purposes, we see the kingdom of God more fully. Anytime you serve someone sacrificially, Anytime you love someone sacrificially, anytime you give of your resources to help someone in need, we see a little bit more of the kingdom of God. It becomes a little bit clearer. The picture becomes a little bit more full. When we sacrificially forgive other people, that moment, you know that moment, right? I'm talking genuine forgiveness. I'm talking someone has deeply wronged you, and you feel it. This isn't just a, "Ah, I didn't really like what you did. It's like, no, our relationship is broken because of what you did. And then they come and they repent. And they are genuinely repenting. And that moment when you forgive them, I can think of an instance within my own family where I've extended forgiveness, and it did not happen overnight. It probably took three or four years. But then that one day when I woke up and I realized I have genuinely forgotten about the incident because i have forgiven them i'm seeing the kingdom of god you see it it becomes more clear it comes into full view and when we do that we show others and ourselves when we live our lives in line in alignment with god's will and his ways we show others and ourselves what is to come our mission is to bring the gospel of the kingdom to bear on others and this is what we see here These two miracles show us that the kingdom of God is here now, and we need to live like we believe it's true. So submit to the king, follow his rule, live according to his ways, and don't be surprised if God works in an extraordinary way in your life because you know he is still active. That means you can dare to hope that God will make peace in relationships you've given up on. It means you can dare to hope that God will heal your marriage it means you can dare to hope that God will wake up his spiritually dormant people in our city. And you can dare to expect the unexpected because God works in extraordinary ways. The kingdom of God, in the words of C.S. Lewis, is, is like the land of Narnia, where Aslan is always on the move. Okay, so in the kingdom of God, God works in extraordinary ways, but, and that's, that's glorious, that's, that's wonderful there's another truth here that's hidden in this text in the kingdom of God ordinary people matter ordinary people so we need to to slow down we marvel at, at how God works in extraordinary ways but we also need to consider how he uses ordinary people there is something very crucial to notice here ordinary people matter to God so they should matter to us I want you to look at this simple detail. Aeneas and Tabitha, which translated into Greek as Dorcas. These two people, this man and this woman. Do you, un- do you realize how many people living at the time that these people lived had no clue what their names were? Can you imagine the amount of people who passed by Aeneas in his condition and never even asked his name? Never even asked his name. Tabitha likely a widow herself, doing ordinary ministry, living, living a quiet life in faithfulness to Jesus, this new faith that she now has. Do you think she was well-known in the area? Probably not outside of Joppa. And what does Peter do here? Well, what does Luke do for us? He names them. Here's Aeneas. We're talking about Aeneas today, this man that was likely relatively unknown in the area because Luke saw fit to include his name here. That shows us that he matters. Peter's compassion here in finding Aeneas shows us that the weak and forgotten people of this world matter in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is not reserved for the strong and for the capable, for the wise, the intelligent, and the influential people of the world. Peter saw Aeneas, and when he did, He saw a fellow human. He saw an image bearer. You notice as Peter's walking around, it's as he's walking around that he sees and he finds Aeneas. People don't come up to him and say, Oh, our friend Aeneas is sick. Please come to him. No, Peter is just walking around the city and he sees Aeneas. He has compassion on him and he goes to him. Ordinary people. Matter in God's kingdom because it is only those who recognize their weakness and need who will be in God's kingdom In one sense We see this in the Sermon on the Mount The kingdom of God is reserved For the weak It's reserved for those who recognize their need for healing and wholeness As Jesus teaches he emphasizes that those who are weak and forgotten by the world are closer To to the kingdom of God than the rich and the powerful. Now why is that? Well, it's not because Jesus discriminates against those with money and it's, it's not because there's something inherently evil or sinful about having money. The reason is because someone who is poor and someone who is needy and someone who is weak and lonely and forgotten more quickly and more easily recognizes their need for what Jesus provides. Especially more easily than someone who is self-sufficient. So, so now Peter, he brought the kingdom of God to bear on Ananias by healing him of his paralysis. He shows us that ordinary people matter to God. Now, we are not going to be able to model his healing. And by the way, if any of you do heal someone the way Peter did, please just give me a call. And if you can, have someone video it, because I just would like to see it, all right? But I'm just going to assume that that's not going to happen. But what we can do is we can bring the realities of God's kingdom to bear on people in our lives by showing through our words and actions that the weak and forgotten people of this world matter to you, matter to me, because they matter to God. You can serve with us at the Salvation Army this summer. Um, we're we're going to be serving there, um, I think it's June 16th is the next day that we're going to be there. It's a Wednesday. Hey look, it's, it's a Wednesday at 445. I know y'all work. I, I know you do. Um, and I know that you may not be able to make that time, but if you can, come with us. Come with us. I, I was so deeply encouraged um, a, th- a couple Wednesdays ago as, as we were serving there. We had a small group that was there, and uh, Miss Jenny Lee, one of our members here, was, was serving there. And it was, what was so interesting to me, we, we provided a meal, we passed out food, but what was so, what was so interesting to me is how Miss Jenny dignified these people who, who, are, who are really struggling, they're homeless They have nowhere to go They're staying at the Salvation Army They have a, they have a roof over their head And she dignified them with conversation Miss Tanya She, she was serving there Dignifying these people with conversation Getting to know them Miss Jenny knows some of the people at the Salvation Army Better than I do some of my distant relatives <laughs> Knows their stories Knows who they are Do you know what she's showing them every single time she goes She's showing them That they matter You can tell someone all day long, hey, look, you matter to God. I would love to see you come to faith in Jesus. He loves you so much. But if you're doing that while not caring for them yourself, they're gonna notice that disconnect. We show people that God cares about them when we care about them. We show people that they matter to God when they matter to us. And this is how we need to model what Peter does here. Not by healing, but by showing compassion. You can give money to our benevolence and our missions funds. You can give money to our general fund. Out of our general fund, we have budgeted support for organizations like the Talbot House. There are ways for you to show compassion to those in our city because ordinary people matter to God. Now, here's here's the last one, and this is what's most shocking. Ordinary lives don't just matter to God, but they glorify God. Ordinary lives Ordinary lives. So growing up in church, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but I remember so many Sunday school teachers, especially when I became, like, was a teenager, a little bit like you know, 10, 11, 12, into my teenage years, youth pastors, they placed all of these lofty dreams and lofty expectations on children and students. And they'd say things like, one day you are going to do big things for God. Anybody like, relate to that? You remember that? Like, they would tell you, like, you're going to do big things for God. Or, you know, they would see you, you would I don't know, if you ever sang like a special on a Sunday morning and it was like you sang good or whatever, they'd come up to you after and be like, you are going to do amazing things. I cannot wait to see how God is going to use you. And people are just being encouraging. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But these expectations that you have, that in order to make a difference for God, you have to do something big. You have to to go on a mission trip. You have to be a missionary yourself. You have to go into the ministry. I can't tell you the number of people who go into the ministry because they believe that's the expectation of their church on them. This is the way you make a difference for God. And you feel like you've somehow fallen short if you just work a menial job. Or you work a, you know, a job where you can make a lot of money so that you can give for, for the sake of the gospel expanding to the ends of the earth or, or become really influential in your city so that you can have gospel conversations with people in power and we think we have to do all of these really big things and that's how we glorify God. And some of you may be really paying attention to the book of Acts and noticing all the big movements of God and you may be noticing the radical sacrifice and obedience of the early Christians and you may be thinking, well, I'm blowing it. My life looks nothing like this. I remember I led a Bible study in college one time, and I had this mindset. I was leading this Bible study. I'm not going to name the author. I won't be petty um, uh, because I just blame him for my thinking on this, but uh, I'm at fault. Uh, I was leading a Bible study, and we were talking about taking the gospel to the nations. And I made some comment. I said something like, if, if you are not going on a mission trip or sharing the gospel frequently on a week to week basis you might not be a Christian I was like if, if, you, if you are not either sacrificially giving of your money so that other people can go to the nations or going yourself you are in disobedience against God and I had a friend who did not hit me and uh, that was kind of him um, but he did push back Um, uh, he he pushed back and he said well take my grandmother for for instance he said my grandmother is a faithful member of her church she loves the Lord, she serves her neighbors she's one of the kindest people I know but she doesn't evangelize very much it doesn't come natural to her she's never gone on a mission trip and at this point in her life she likely will never go on a mission trip and he just said what about her I'm haunted by what I said I, I, I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure I said something like, well, she needs to repent. And again, he was gracious by not hitting me, because I was a jerk. I was a jerk, and I had a very immature and incomplete understanding of how the gospel works, and I did not understand how life works in God's kingdom. Notice Tabitha. Will you look at the text with me? It's so important that Luke includes these details about her life. Peter was a rock star. He was an apostle. He lived and he ministered with Jesus. He preached the first Christian sermon. He was widely known. He was traveling all over the place preaching the gospel and seeing people come to Jesus in the thousands. And then here is Tabitha. Look at this. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him, urging him, please come without delay. Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, look at this. They took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Tabitha likely never left Joppa. She was not known by many. She may not have ever seen Jesus. She didn't have a preaching tour. She didn't lead mass conversions. But Luke shows us that she was just as faithful and just as important to the gospel's advance and that she was just as influential in God's kingdom as Peter was. See her faithfulness. He tells us she was full of good works and acts of charity. What a eulogy. It's an ordinary legacy, but it's a beautiful one. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Tabitha had a reputation in her community as a person who loved God and loved others. She took her brand new faith seriously. She sought to follow Jesus, and his love for her overflowed through her to other people. And notice her influence. The moment that this ordinary saint died... Her friends were absolutely devastated. Their grief led them to to do anything they could. Send for Peter. I hear he's nearby. Send for Peter. Maybe he can come. But Tabitha had very clearly given her life to these widows. They're they're likely either wearing or showing the clothes that Tabitha made for them. I mean, widows had a hard life. They had a very hard life in this time. And it was hard to, to get by. And Tabitha noticed this and provided for them. She's sewing and she's, she's knitting and she's stitching for the glory of God. Tabitha glorified God by making clothes for widows. How ordinary. And yet how beautiful. We have this tendency to think that the preachers and evangelists and missionaries matter more in the kingdom of God And you may be thinking that you are an utter failure because of the job that you have or the work that you do or the time that you have to commit to more important gospel work. We tend to think that people with big ministries and large churches matter more. We think that gospel influence is measured by size or number, but it's not. It's measured by love and service. Faithful Christians working to make ends meet maintaining hope amid the grind of daily life, witnessing to the power of Jesus in their works, are every bit as important to God as the best-known preacher there is on the earth. You can glorify God in extraordinary ways by leading a quiet, ordinary life. Your ordinary acts of kindness at your ordinary job matter greatly in the kingdom of God. You don't have to be a person with extraordinary skills or gifts or abilities or status or bank accounts to make a difference for the kingdom. All you have to do is be faithful with what God has given you with the people that he has placed in your life. Uh, One of my favorite writers, he, he puts it this way. Luke is right to draw our eyes down to the small scale and immediate in case we should ever forget that these are the people who form the heart of the church. While the apostles and evangelists go about making important decisions, getting locked up, stoned, or shipwrecked, preaching great sermons, writing great letters, and generally being great and good all over the place, do not, he says, belittle the ministry of stitching, sewing, knitting, and generally providing for the needs of the community. And do not forget to celebrate, as Luke does here, the fact that the apparently ordinary people Are not ordinary to God. And that when we tell the story of the great sweep of God's purposes in history, there are at every point the Aeneases and the Dorcases who smile out of the page at us and remind us what it's really all about. As we close here, I want you to notice the beauty of the gospel's impact. Luke tells us once again that the church grew in number. God used the weakness of Aeneas, he used the ordinary faithfulness of Tabitha to bring many people to faith in him. Another writer said, in God's providence, this one woman, known to her friends for her love and kindness, becomes the means through which people believe in Jesus. Her passive witness, as the object of the Spirit's unlimited power, is really no different than our own witnessing. She was dead and raised, and her story became a means of faith for others people will come to faith in Jesus as you intentionally live on mission, finding ways to share the gospel on a day-to-day basis. That's a given. But don't think for a minute that you have to be the world's greatest evangelist to reach people for Jesus. Sometimes all it takes is owning your weakness, transparently needing Jesus, and sometimes all it takes is an ordinary, quiet, and faithful life in service to God and others for God's glory to be seen. Let me pray.